Hey all, thank you for tuning into Women Birders Happy Hour. My name is Hannah. I'm a birder, a woman, and someone that enjoys a good drink after a long day of birding. Women have been integral to birding since it started, but we haven't always been recognized for the contributions and impact we have. Men have dominated the guiding scene, festival circuit, leadership positions, and publications. And according to a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 2011 report, in the U.S., there were over 47 million birders. The majority of these birders are college-educated, they are white, they are women, and mostly are over the age of 55. And if you put all these factors together, we create the typical birder, a white, college-educated woman over the age of 55. And that's a demographic that I often see out birding, but I don't as frequently see as a speaker, a guide, or a sole publisher. Additionally, the voices of all women, BIPOC, and LGBTQ plus birders are not well represented in the birding voices we hear from. So I created this show to bring in more voices. Not to say that some of the regular festival keynotes aren't great, but there is room for others. And on the show, I'm asking everyday women from all walks of life to join me to discuss their experiences, their resources, and advice that they have for others. And I want you to remember that just because you may not have experienced some of these things, like sexism or gatekeeping, doesn't mean that they aren't real issues that others face. And because some of these conversations are best had over a cocktail or a mocktail, I also create a unique cocktail for each guest in case you want to mix yourself a drink and join us for this chat. Look at all the birds. That's great advice. It's how you can spot the yellow-headed blackbird and the red-winged blackbird flock, or the rare sparrow that runs in and out of the bushes. And as I mentioned in Carla's interview, I'm too lazy to look at all the birds, which now that I'm saying that, it just feels really lame. Am I really so excited and dedicated to birds and birding that I'm willing to make the effort to grab my gear, go outside, and then not look at every bird? So since interviewing Carla a few weeks ago, I've made more of an effort to look at every bird. It's helped me see the first-of-season white-throated sparrow who popped out of the bushes when I figured all the sparrows were white-crowned sparrows or song sparrows. It helped me to see the perched peregrine falcon when a cooper's hawk was screaming at something in a tree that I assumed was a red tail. It helps you to stay in the moment, see birds, and learn more about the birds you, you do and don't see. Birding is about experiences, and I encourage you to savor the little and big experiences as much as you can. Because, after all, birding should be a joy, and I know I feel lucky that I found it. Anyways, Carla will tell us about the time she found a Hudsonian godwit, which is a graceful, long-legged, large shorebird. They have a slightly upturned bill that is pink with a black tip. Their plumage is gold, brown, and brick red. They have a pretty narrow range, and if you look at the range map, it has a just super um, specific column of land that they travel through, through the Midwest, up to their breeding area in Canada, Alaska, Hudson Bay, and then down the East Coast as they travel down to their wintering area in uh, South America. When they do breed, they nest on the ground in marshy areas, laying four or so olive-colored eggs, and in 22 days, the chicks hatch, the parents will look after those chicks, and then they fledge about a month later. They eat insects and crustaceans by probing in shallow waters. The species was once thought to be very rare. However, it was probably overlooked and because of their long migration between the Arctic and South America. The species was once thought to be very rare. However, it was probably overlooked due to their long migration between the Arctic and South America. But their population was almost decimated due to unrestricted hunting. 
So their scientific name is what gives this drink its character. <laughs> and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it translates from the Latin to muddy and bloody, which provides the perfect opportunity to make a cherry mudslide, which now is also known as a Hudsonian godwit. So to make it, what you'll need is a shot of vodka, a shot of coffee liqueur, a shot of Irish cream liqueur, a shot of maraschino cherry juice, ice, and then maraschino cherries. So it's pretty easy. Fill your glass with ice, pour in all the liquids, stir. If you'd like, you could shake it and then strain it into a glass and then garnish with cherries. It's a sweet, creamy cocktail that would be a great Valentine's Day drink. It's rich, flavorful, and has a great light chestnut color representative of a Hudsonian Godwit. So grab a drink and enjoy this wonderful, insightful conversation with Carla. Well, Carla, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Would you please tell everyone who you are? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so my name is Carla Kelly. I live in Olympia, Washington. I'm a birder, and then I also am a professional ornithologist. So are you originally from Olympia? I'm originally from Tacoma, which is 30 miles north of Olympia. So I'm very, very rooted down here. Well, Olympia is a beautiful place. Every time we drive past the capital, it's just like, ah, uh, you know, it's the most beautiful capital, I think. Yeah, it's not a bad place. It's definitely charming. Um, if you're ever in the area, it's really cool to do the capital tour. It's actually surprisingly interesting. And it's full of fun facts, like why they chose every part of that building is so specifically designed, like why they chose this carpet, why they chose this door. Very well done. The people that do those tours are excellent. Cannot recommend enough, and it's free. Huh. Yeah, I'm going to have to do that sometime. So how long have you been birding, and how did you get started birding? So I've been birding since about 2014, um, and then more seriously, I've been birding probably for the last two years, so not not terribly long. Um, I got into it in college when I took an ornithology program, and then I took um, and avian monitoring and research methods. And then that's kind of when it became more of a professional and academic focus. So what does a typical day of birding look like for you? Well, so I guess my relationship with birding is a little bit weird because I do it as a job also. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of the times my birding is just kind of on the job. I hope my boss doesn't hear that. Um, I mean, in some ways, birding is very much my job, but I usually have a little bit more focus than just birding. But if something cool flies by, I'm not, not going to look. Um, <laughs> and so, so usually, you know, it's a work day and I'm waking up at four in the morning, getting ready, going out to my field site. I have to be at my field site um, like 30 minutes after sunrise usually is when birds start to really perk up. And then I'm just, I'm working and so I'm doing a lot of nest searching. I have one species in mind and I'm, I've got these goals and these objectives. And so I'm trying to fit in my work day and do whatever I need to do for work. But obviously I'm outside and there's birds all around. And so I'm seeing what there is to see as any good naturalist does. Um, but then in my free time, when I have the energy to go birding, um, especially in the winter when I'm not working in the field as much, I guess a regular day of birding is just kind of whatever I need it to be. So like if I want to sleep in, I'll just go birding a little bit later. If I want to wake up early and I'm feeling super driven, I'll wake up early. 
sometimes I'll go, we have um, Billy Frank Jr. Nisqually National Wildlife Refuge, um, just like 15 minutes out of town. And so I'll go there and that's usually, I always say like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to bird at Nisqually for like an hour. I'll make it a quick trip. And then I end up there for four hours. Um, and so that's one way to do it. Or I'll just kind of pick up cool place to go and maybe birds for 15 minutes. Sometimes I'm very mission oriented, like there's a cool bird I want to see or I want to scan some shorebird or duck flocks. Um, and then other times I'm pretty loosey goosey and we'll just kind of wander and see what's there. Lately also a friend of mine and I will go, there's a place called KGY Point in Olympia. Um, it's a radio station on the water and we have taken to going there and we will set up our scopes and scan the bay and like we'll have some wine or something and we'll we'll do this like pretty informal relaxed birding drinking chatting venting whatever whatever we need to do we'll, we'll do it there i'm not advocating drinking in public for the record <laughs> that sounds like fun though <laughs> but everyone does it yeah we were we were being sketchy about it we had like a bottle of wine in our backpack and we were being you know, kind of brown bagging it, but then there was this older couple sitting at a table who just had a wine bottle out on the table and they like had their wine glasses and they were just having this cute little day evening. So we were like, oh, this is just what people do here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it occurs to me that I've talked a lot about, uh, or two wildlife biologists, but how did you like learn the skills needed to do your job? Is it on the job training or was it in school? So I took a program in school um, called Avian Research and Monitoring Methods, which was all about how to do field work, basically, and I didn't really appreciate it at the time, as as people do. Um, but that was a lot of, like, my professor was teaching us how to do point counts, how to do transects, how to do all these different methods, how to do bioacoustic monitoring, how to keep a field notebook, and things like that. Um, and those are definitely skills that started then and then have helped me a lot kind of just pick it up and then mostly it's on the job training and so I actually started out in this profession as an AmeriCorps um, service member through AmeriCorps and Washington Service Corps and so that was really cool because for those kinds of positions um, you're kind of trying to find people who aren't necessarily super qualified um, and that was kind of my way because I did a lot of marine biology stuff and so that was kind of my way to take my career and spirit really hard towards birds because that's what I knew I wanted to do and so that gave me a lot of on-the-job training and I have great coworkers and great supervisors and a lot of great opportunities through that. What year were you in AmeriCorps? Oh I just so I did two service terms um, I started February 2019. Oh okay I did um, I was in Washington Service Corps in 2012 to 2013. Year. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've got, I mean, a lot of my coworkers were in, um, you might know some of my coworkers, actually, they were, they did AmeriCorps and Washington Service Corps, probably around that time. Yeah, it's a, AmeriCorps is definitely something that, you know, people don't talk a whole lot about, but it's a great way to get in. Yeah, it's a gem. Um, I think I have a lot of <laughs> criticisms about it, um, as, as you do, and especially when you're living in an expensive city like Olympia, and making seven dollars an hour essentially <laughs> um that's not cool 
rent is really expensive here. It's just not really practical um, as like a, an adult trying to live out on your own. It's really great if you have like parents to stay with. Um, but, you know, that being said, I got this AmeriCorps Education Award that has paid off my student loans, which is incredible. Wow. Um, yeah, and I got this like invaluable job training. But I mean, granted, I got really lucky. There's an organization in Olympia that did the work that I wanted to do. And it's not always like that. Like, I definitely didn't want to read the kids um, or do anything like that. And so it's, it's really valuable if you can find something that works for you and something that's going to give you good experience. I also know that my experience and my organization kind of are um, a little bit higher quality than a lot of people's experiences and organizations. And so I got, I was very fortunate in that way. Yeah, that's good. I, I know I wasn't happy in mind, but you know, the scholarship is definitely fantastic. The pretty much the best skill I learned was networking. Um, we mm -hmm. went to a lot of conferences and networked, so that has uh, proved to be a very good skill to learn. Yeah, they do a really, I, I guess my, one of my main criticisms with AmeriCorps, which I'm lucky because my, my organization and my supervisor really offset this, but um, AmeriCorps isn't really set up for like field biologists or anything like that. Like they kind of have an environmental side, but it's more about like trail crews and things like that. Um, and then like AmeriCorps at large is really about the kind of social sciences type of thing. And so a lot of the trainings and stuff that they had us do didn't really apply to me. It was like kind of weird because they have those AmeriCorps requirements that you have to mm -hmm. do. Um, and a lot of them just like didn't really apply to me or my work or my professional development. Um, and so that's kind of my main criticism, but they heard all about it. So <laughs> hopefully they can improve a little bit and just offer, I guess, I guess I would just like to see them be more inclusive to different types of work. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That's a great point. So you're birding. What sort of influences have you had where, people or books or like what drives you or got you interested? So I would say a main driver and I'm taking a few steps forward because there's a lot more that laid the groundwork that I can get into. Um, but like a, a main driver of birding was that I was looking through eBird one day and I noticed that there weren't very many women in the top 10 um, or any in some cases. And so that, that was really like, that lit this very kind of spiteful fire under me where I was like, are you kidding me? I know that there are really excellent women birders out there, but then the, their presence wasn't, wasn't there on eBird. Um, and that's important when we consider the purpose of eBird um, and the contributors, and that's going to bias the data, um, which is kind of broad. But that's kind of what I was thinking coming at it from that point. And so I was like, okay, well, I need to get in here. I need to kind of, I don't want to say I'm like paving the way or anyway, because that's, that's a little self-important for me, which I don't think I'm doing that uh, by any means because there were so many women here before me, but that's kind of the point. Like there are women out there, but when you are looking at the top 10 and you're seeing all of these generally older white men, it doesn't feel like an inclusive space. And, I have definitely seen a lot of 
examples why there aren't a lot of women super actively on eBird. Um, because the field is just kind of still that way. Um, and so I just wanted to get in there and shake things up. Um, my professor in college was a big influence of why I got in this. I had a few professors in college that were just these intelligent women um, who just kind of seemed to have everything. And they're like, I guess I, what really resonated with me was that they were resources in and of themselves. It was, they had unique ideas, they had unique thoughts, they had experience-based knowledge. That was just so incredible to me, um, not really having seen that before. And what college so did that, you go to? I went to the Evergreen State College, okay, which is cool. a, a little, a tiny, tiny little state hippie college. But the, so it's kind of got like this, this regional joke, um, air about it because it is kind of a hippie school it's not kind of a hippie school it's a hippie school but <laughs> we have this like really incredible science program that allows undergrads to get really hands-on experience and kind of design their own work um in this level of independence that's more similar to grad school than a lot of undergraduate educations tend to be yeah i know i always wanted to go there <laughs> it sounded like an interesting place yeah it was really cool i learned so much I mean, academically, but also just about myself and about people. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's everything that people joke about it being for sure, but it's very charming and you get to build these connections, especially with your professors. Like a lot of my professors I'm friendly with and, you know, I can go to them for help and they're willing to do more for me. And even just admin wise, which I think admin is always the most frustrating thing about any institution, but even the benefits of being at such a small school, like they really, I was able to tell them, like, I have a graduate school deadline coming up. I really, really need my transcript ASAP. And they were all over it. They, they did everything they could to make sure that it got there on time. That's great. Yeah, I went to Oregon State University and kind of, you know, was tiny fish in a big pond and don't really have those connections that I, I really wish I would have gotten. Yeah, it's daunting. Um, I really liked that I kind of got to know my professors personally, and that was really important to me. I was supposed to go to Pacific University um, in Forest Grove, but it was, it ended up just being really expensive. And I, I went into college actually wanting to study psychology and Spanish language. And so I took like a, I wouldn't call it a 180, but a 90 degree turn and ended up doing biology by a weird set of circumstances, which is just kind of how life works. And I'm really happy to have ended up here. And I think I don't think I would have ended up here if I hadn't gone to Evergreen. Well, that's really cool. So when you first started birding, um, did you feel that you were able to find like places to go, bird identification information? Like, did you have the resources you needed to be successful? Um, I would say that like the programs that I took in college were really helpful because I kind of felt like I already got a taste of that kind of a thing. Um, but at the end of the day, like field books and things like that can only do so much. And what really helped me getting started was just making connections with good people. Um, and so I actually, I have two good friends, both guys, but they were my coworkers and they're super nerdy, super into birding. And, and like one of, one of the guys 
um, has lived all across the country and he just works in different places around the country and he's from um, Florida and he's lived in Colorado and so he's he was really great just he's just such an excellent birder um, and then my other friend um, he's also a Washingtonian and so kind of like between the three of us we made this like we always joked about seeing a killer birding team um, <laughs> And that, that was the best and birding with them was the best and the most informative. And we still have like an ongoing group chat where we can kind of joke about things or we'll post, you know, if we see something rare, we'll kind of like send it to each other and we'll discuss like if we think it's legitimate or, or whatever. And so they've been super helpful and really just birding with other people is really helpful. Um, even I've done some Christmas bird counts and birding with some of those, um, those more like hardcore older birders is really great because there's just people have so much experience to share and if you can find people I guess the hard part in that is that it's hard to find people and it's hard to find people that you have good chemistry with and that you want to spend hours in the field with and um, stuff like that but it really that really helps and then um, guidebooks are great but really just going out and looking at birds um, and just like one of the things that one of my friends kind of imparted on me is that, you know, he, he would look at every bird and he's such a, such an excellent birder, but he would look at every single bird, no matter what, like, even if we were certain it was a song sparrow, he would still pick up his binoculars and look at it. And it was like, you never passed a bird. If, if there was a bird, you looked at it. And a lot of times that's when you see like really cool new stuff, um, you know, like, even just in my house, I'll stand here and I'll look through these flocks of golden crown sparrows. And then sometimes there'll be a white throated sparrow or something. And that's really what you have to do. And then in my work, I work with Vesper sparrows, which are just small brown birds that never come up from the ground. And so I've gotten especially used to just looking at every bird because you really have to look at every single bird to know if it's, if it's a Vesper sparrow, if it's the one you're looking for, but 90% of the time it's probably a Savannah sparrow. Um, but you learn so much. Like I've seen, you know, thousands of Savannah sparrows and hundreds of Vesper sparrows and you start to really see the nuance and the minute details in their behavior and their posture and their coloring and at all different stages of life, which is really huge because they look different sometimes when they're young birds versus when they're older birds. Yeah, I, I noticed that um, I tend to not look at every single bird, you know, because it's just like the effort of putting on my binoculars I'm too lazy for sometimes. But when I have a scope, like that's when I really like, you know, I look at every single duck on the pond when I have my scope. So I really started scoping things out more than using my binoculars. But that's, that's really great advice. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think that I'm also like a very pretty anxious person. And I think that there's a lot to be said about just like forcing myself to take a minute and just, and just look. And if I'm getting bored or there's not something interesting going on, I'll just, you know, kind of have a break and just look around. And I, and I like that because I don't like, I want birding to be really accessible to people. And so I don't like the idea that you have to have a bunch of books or you have to do a bunch of purchasing and stuff like that. I like the idea that you can get like a pretty cheap decent pair of binoculars and go out and you can learn so much just just in your backyard even just take a minute and 
look at every song sparrow that pops up or even you don't even have to know what the birds are you don't even have to use a field guide just look at every bird and see how they're different see how they behave differently how they look different what they sound like that was a, another big thing in helping learn bird songs and bird calls was just even if i thought i knew what it was just really making an effort to find that bird so i would hear a bird and i would just do I would take them as long as it took and I would get eyes on that bird. And so that helped me with being able to spot birds that are probably skulking. Um, and then like purple finches especially can sound like every other kind of bird. And they're very good at sounding like vireos. Um, and so just getting in that habit where, you know, I, I hear something, I spot it, I listen to it, I, have learned so much about song variation and it's taught me a lot about what can sound like other things and how to pick them apart by these like small differences and tiny sound bites. So what advice would you have for other women birders? Um, I think community is huge, especially I don't always feel safe going out alone, especially to some of these patches that are some some places that we like to bird are a little bit sketchy and there are definitely a lot of places that I like to go that I won't go alone um you know and my partner doesn't doesn't really want to go indulge every birding whim that I have which I don't expect him to and so it's good to have good friends that you can call on who are like as stoked as you um because you don't have to know everything, but you just have to be like excited and, and down to go out and maybe you drive an hour and you don't really see anything and you don't really see what you're after. But if you're just with somebody that you like to hang out with and you're both kind of driven in the same wave, then you can have a really good time. And, and you, you learn so much more bouncing things off of, off of people and just staying super open and learning what other people have experiencing and just kind of keeping yourself open to learning from other perspectives like it's never you know it's not about um i guess there's a big attitude in the birding community of like you have these people who are like oh i've been birding for 20 plus years and they have this like kind of importance about them and this i mean it's it's arrogant in a lot of ways but um but then you have these people who are such excellent birders who are still open to talking about things and still really keen on learning. And, you know, they're birds. They don't care what they're called. They don't care what their field marks are. And they're changing um, as species always are. And so it's just, it's good to have people that you can kind of talk about things with, vent about things, discuss what you saw. Um, I think that all goes a really long way. So as more experienced birders, uh, what can we do to be more supportive and foster new birders and create, you know, a more welcoming community? So something that I've noticed a lot, um, just as somebody who's always talking about birds, but I don't necessarily have like a huge birding community because I am just kind of a little bit more introverted, a little bit more reserved, um, I set up a Facebook account, but then I just kind of got tired of Facebook and just wasn't really, it's hard. Social media is very hard. Um, and so like, I've just kind of 
gotten really into answering my friends' questions and my family's questions, and I'll point some things out. Um, and people are really receptive. Um, and especially, like, I love, I love when my friends and even people that I, like, don't really know very well, but they'll send me these bird pictures on Instagram, or they'll ask me, like, hey, I saw this bird, it was this color, um, it was doing this, this, and that. Um, and so I feel like I've got this, like, kind of group of people outside of the birding community who have become, like, kind of sideline bird fans. And so I've got these people who they're just paying more attention to birds, which I think is really, really cool. And I've met a lot of people that, you know, they say that they hate birds and they've never liked birds or whatever. And then they tell me why. And I kind of explain, you know, why birds do certain things or, or I explain, you know, I think it's so wild to say that you just don't like birds because there's so many and they're so different. And usually by the end of our conversation, like, I can maybe, you know, maybe they still hate crows and, and gulls, but you know, they, they really like bush tits now. <laughs> <laughs> there's like, a, it's like, there's a, there's a bird for everyone. And there's cool things about birds that everyone can enjoy and they're everywhere. So you can really, you can sit on your balcony and look at birds. You can put a bird feeder up and just see what comes and you can get as into it as you want, or you can keep it super casual. And I think everybody has a bird story, whether they're birders or not. Definitely. Everybody has a bird story. Um, and it's cool. It's, it's really cool to see people. I mean, I've, I'm so privileged to have friends and family who are so involved with what I do. But, like, you know, I'm getting – my dad sends me bird pictures of things that he's seeing in his yard. And he's, he's kind of paying more attention. And he's seeing when – you know, the eagles come around, all the other birds go away. Um, you know, my mom will send me videos of hummingbirds and she wants to make her balcony into like a, a bird habitat. And yeah, everybody has, you know, a lot of things too. I've got a friend and her partner, um, his grandma really likes birds and loves chickadees and goldfinches. And so like he wants to get a tattoo of those to honor her. And I think it, it's just super cool that they are kind of it's okay it's kind of like how humans have evolved with dogs like dogs have always been kind of part of our history and it's like birds I mean you can't avoid them birds are always going to be a part of our story and I think that that's just really cool and really really unique and it's cool if you can kind of appreciate that and make it a part of your life totally so do you feel that you found your place in the birding community? For the most part, yeah. And that's such a good question. Um, and that's something that I've been thinking about a lot because in a lot of ways, I guess I do still feel like a little bit outcast because, I mean, I'm I'm young and a woman. And so in a lot of ways, I'm not taken very seriously, which I'm not I'm not a super serious person. And, and I think if anything, the birding community could stand to take itself a lot less seriously, but <laughs> I get blown off a lot. Um, you know, like a, my sightings get doubted a lot. Um, there's kind of this like inherent gaslighting, which I don't ever think is super intentional, but I see the way my male cohorts are treated and they're definitely treated um, 
kind of with the assumption that they know what they're talking about and the assumption that they have experience. Um, and it's like, it's also like, because I haven't been on eBird for a super long time, I guess my name's just not really out there. Um, people bird without eBird, believe it or not. Um, yeah, so, so yes, um, I mean, obviously I'm, I have my own little community and I have, I have my own voice in the community. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that I feel completely integrated, completely welcome, but I think that's more a reflection of the, of the vibe and the times. And I think that it's changing a lot. And I know that in ornithology, especially it's, you know, it's very much a field that was started by a certain kind of person, but it's shifting a lot. And there are a lot of women starting to take up positions in ornithology. And so like what I'm excited about and what I'm driven towards is to get women, you know, not just in tech positions, but up high. I want women to be policymakers, land managers, um, just make the field more equitable towards other people. And people of color, which are very underrepresented and just all kinds of people that we don't generally see in this community. I feel like we're living in a time right now, you know, even in the past year, there has been so much change in the way that, you know, people of color and women are being represented in the birding community. And I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's an incredible time to be a part of this community and see this change. Yeah. And my, my big thing is that like, I truly honestly believe that anybody can do this. I believe that anybody can be a birder. Anybody can be a field biologist. I don't, I don't agree with the ideology that you have to have a degree to do this. I think that you can get all of the training that you need with a high school diploma or whatever. Um, it's a skill and you can be taught observation skills are skills that you can be taught. I didn't come here with all of these skills. Um, I think a lot of what has kept this field predominantly male and predominantly white has just been attitude um, and, and the degree of welcoming. You know, it's got this elitism. It's got this, you have to have all this gear. You have to have all this money to be able to travel, to be able to buy stuff. Um, and it just doesn't have to be that way. Like you can, binoculars are important. Um, I wouldn't even say that that's a be all end all though. Um, and you can get that for cheap. You can get the second hand. I almost never buy anything full price. Um, and I didn't grow up very wealthy. So it was like, it was daunting when I started, but then I kind of, birds are everywhere. They're all over the place. You can see them, you can appreciate them, you can listen to them. You don't have to look the part. You don't have to wear a field vest. You can wear whatever you want. You can do it. Anybody can do it. It's totally possible. Uh, that's, that's such a great call to action. Uh, what has been your most memorable bird or birding experience? There are so many. Um, so in May, we did a global big day. I think it was global big day. And that was really cool. We saw so many cool things. We had like a, we had a white breasted nut hatch. And so that whole day we saw a, an oriole building a nest. We saw kingbirds nesting in Western Washington, which is always pretty special. Uh, we saw a prairie falcon. That was just a crazy whirlwind. And then right after that, we saw a barn owl. And so it was just a crazy day. So that's a huge one. Um, and then fairly recently in like September, 
I was working and, and right now I'm working on a project in estuaries up in the North Sound, um, like kind of south of Bellingham area, the Skagit Valley. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm going out in waders and I'm trudging along these marshes, which are just muddy, slippery, wet, gross places. But, um, I love to be out there and I was, I was going out to one of our survey plots to just do my survey, do my regular job, business as usual. And I'm walking up to the site and I'm all tired because I'm walking miles across mud flats and waders and it's probably 80 degrees or whatever. Tired at the end of my day, probably hungry, thirsty, whatever. Um, and so I stopped to take a minute, get my data sheet out and I look and I'm like, what is that bird? And it was like this really big shorebird. And I was like, that's not a yellow leg. And so I go to put my binoculars up, but I had so many things. I dropped my clipboard and I was like, great, I'm going to scare this bird away. <laughs> I felt like such an idiot because like at this point I ruled out that it's, it's not a yellow legs. And so at this point, like anything that it's going to be is going to be pretty uncommon. So I, I'm thinking, you know, it's going to be like a, marbled godlet or or something like that and so I put up my my binoculars and it has this upturned bill and really long legs and so I'm like okay it's a godlet um, I'm looking at it I'm thinking you know it's probably a marbled godlet because that's the most likely thing um but then I'm and I'm 10 feet away from this bird so this <laughs> this whole experience is just blowing my mind um and I'm watching it, but it's not, it doesn't have any of the marble Godwit things about it. And I'm like, oh, is this just like a, it's just so plain. It's not cinnamony at all. It's just kind of this gray, tan, pale color, this pink bill. And so at that point, you know, the alarm bells are going off in my head and I'm starting to freak out. And so, yeah, I mean, I watched it for a while and then I was, I was like, whatever, I have to work. I have to do this job. I'm, you know, there's a certain tide window that I have. I can't waste time. I'm not, I'm getting paid to do a job. I have to do my job. Um, <laughs> I've spent enough time looking at this bird and then it, it goes and it starts to preen and I see white um, on its rump. And that's when I was like, Oh, like screw work. I'm just going <laughs> to watch this bird a little bit longer. <laughs> Sorry. If my boss ever listens to this. Sorry. Um, you know what you're doing when you hire people like this though. <laughs> um, and so that's when I started to freak out. And then I call my coworker who's like way on the other side of the marsh. And I'm like, Tim, you got to see this. Um, and I'm, I'm just describing field marks to him. And I'm like, I just, I need you to talk me through this. Um, and then he starts freaking out too, because he's like, okay, you need to see, you need to see that bird. And so I'm like, okay, I have to flush this bird, which I didn't want to do because I wanted to watch it. But after I felt like I watched it sufficiently, I was like, I, I have to flush this bird. I was so scared that it would like flush in a weird direction and I wouldn't be able to see, but I had to see its underwings because I had to get those, like, I had to, I had to see the whole bird so that I could make a definitive call. Sure. And I got a video of it, which is, I'm so glad because it's such a brief thing, but I flushed it. It flew like perfectly so that the light hit it just right. So I could see everything. I got a video of it and then it actually flew closer to where my coworker was. So I was able to bust out my, my whole reason I was out there get my job done and then like I'm talking to him and and he's like I see the bird I 
spotted it again and we're both trying to close in on it and he had to cross some sketchy channels that were like maybe a little bit deeper he almost topped his waders but it but you know so it was it was a Hudsonian godwit um which we were just like freaking out I'm so glad he was able to see it because I don't think anybody would have believed me (laughs) we got some like really bad cell phone pictures but we got enough information that it was undeniable um and I think it was something like the fifth state record wow godwit yeah and so that I mean rare birds are always super special recently I had American tree sparrows um which it's just such a it's I mean, chasing rarities is really fun, but it's so much more special when you see it yourself and oh, totally. just that feeling of like being out and, you know, cause I've gotten into this habit of looking at every single bird. And then when I put my binoculars up and something is off about this bird um, and it warrants a second look because like with the tree sparrows, I, I put my binoculars up and I, and I first thought like, Oh, a chipping sparrow would be really weird right now. And in my brain was like, you're crazy. There's not a chipping sparrow. And then I was like, oh, it's probably just like a white crown. Um, but, you know, it's like that that little thing goes off in your head where you're like, oh, let's, let's just have a minute. And then I, you know, just waited it out. And these birds were hiding. And so I just kind of, the gears are starting to turn. And I had to just sit there and wait. And then when you finally see it, you get a really good look at it, look at it and you're going through all of the field marks in your head. And it just, it all just really comes together in this really beautiful way where you just have this, like, you get this high and then you're always kind of chasing that high. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's amazing. Um, Yeah, that's a great story. So if anyone wants to find out more about you and the the work that you do, how would we, how would we do that? Um, So I'm on Instagram. Um, My Instagram handle is at Carla Valin, which I'm not going to spell out on a podcast because that's boring, but maybe we can <laughs> put it in a I'll put it in the show notes. Um, and then I work, the organization that I work for is called Eco Studies Institute. Um, we specialize with work on prairie species in Western Washington. We do a lot of work with also, we have a fire side and we have prairie habitat specialists. Um, and so we're doing kind of a an all around um, approach to conservation. Um, and then we also do some work on estuary restoration projects in the North Sound. And we are also on Instagram. Um, and I sometimes post about, sometimes I get to post about things that I'm up to, but we post about everything that we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, and our Instagram account, I think is at, I think it's at Eco Studies Institute. And I am ashamed I don't know it, but maybe we can throw that yeah. in the, in the notes too. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, follow us there. You can follow me on Instagram. I post a lot of birds, but I post some like random stuff about my life too. So. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been so much fun and I hope, you know, you can get down to here sometime or I can get up to Olympia sometime and we can, we can drink some wine and look at birds. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. I think about ocean shores is one of my all time favorite destination so I think about it a lot and I really want to see the the puffins on Haystack Rock yes so I'll have to I'll, yeah I'm itching to come down there so we'll have to do some birding thank you Carla for all of your great advice and experiences it was so fun to talk with you and I'm thrilled to hear you were accepted into a graduate program may you have a bright birdie career ahead of you <laughs>
Thank you all for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe you learned something. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to me. If you'd like to connect with me on the socials, please follow me at Hannah Goes Birding on Instagram. My Twitter is at WomenBirdersHH, or you can email me at WomenBirders at gmail.com. I also have resources and information on GoBirdingPodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you at the next happy hour.